Welcome back to The Signature of Man, a podcast dedicated to pursuing truth in the philosophy of art and beauty. This is episode 9 of The Signature of Man podcast, and I'm your host, Miguel Benitez Jr. In this episode, I had the opportunity to interview Michael Jahoski. Due to my posting this interview on multiple platforms, I introduced Michael at the beginning of our discussion, so I won't do that here. In this episode, Michael and I discussed the idea of myth, parable, and allegory in the writings of J.R.R. Tolkien. We then conclude by discussing some implications of Michael's research for the philosophy of art. Today I have a guest with me. I have Michael Jahoski with me. Michael is a assistant professor of humanities at St. Petersburg College in Clearwater, Florida. And he's been teaching for 10 years. He's also been active in a local church for the past seven years, teaching classes on apologetics. He's also been involved in campus ministry and other activities through his 10 years at St. Petersburg College. His academic background is in Greek, Roman, and biblical history, philosophy, theology, and the arts, and he has two bachelor's degrees from the University of Central Florida and a master's in humanities from the University of South Florida. The topic, uh, or at least one of the topics of our discussion today, will be surrounding his new book called The Good News of the Return of the King, The Gospel in Middle Earth, which is available on Amazon and Whip and Stocks website. First of all, just thank you for spending the time and and being able to talk with me about your book today. I'm honored. Thank you for having me on, Miguel. It's good to be with a friend. Yeah. And and so um, I'm really excited about our conversation here. For those who who may not be familiar with kind of both aspects of, of some of what I do, I just want to be clear here. So we have kind of a crossover episode uh, today because usually I do my philosophy of religion stuff on YouTube and then I do my aesthetics and philosophy of art on the podcast, The Signature of Man. So this will be a Signature of Man episode, but it is also uh, going to be published on YouTube because I think it is relevant to both areas here. Um, Mm -hmm. And as I was reading your book, Michael, I just got really excited. I, I mean, I love reading the G.K. Chesterton's, J.R.R. Tolkien's, C.S. Lewis's. I love reading them. I love what they say. I think they were great thinkers. I think they, they just have so much to offer our culture today and, and our intellectuals today. I, I, I think academia could learn a lot from J.R. Tolkien in our setting today. Why don't you go ahead and just start us off by kind of summarizing the the thesis for your book. Yeah, so in uh, the 1940s, C.S. Lewis wrote uh, an essay, one of my favorites. It's in God in the Dock essay compilation called Myth Became Fact. And it's a well-known, beloved essay. And I mentioned it several points uh, throughout my book. But in the introduction, you know, I kind of set up this stage and elsewhere that Uh, Lewis talked about something called our tragic dilemma, which he said is either to know and to not taste or to taste and to not know. And then he proposes, among other things, that myth, coming from the Greek word mythos, which I'll define later in more detail, is a partial solution. Now, it's interesting. This is kind of the lurking behind the answer to this question, what is the thesis of my book, is that we have this tragic dilemma. And elsewhere, um, you know, Owen Barfield also talked about this and I think poetic diction, that both he and Lewis, and I think he got this idea from Barfield, believe that since Adam and Eve, since the fall, humankind is not only suffering the effects of sin and 
in, in spiritual senses, physical senses, but in a noetic sense and even a linguistic sense that we no longer think in a unified way. There's this split in between heaven and earth, between subject and object, abstract and concrete, mythos and logos, and that's not supposed to be. And now Barfield really delves into this in, in a poetic diction, but Lewis, among other things, learning this from Barfield kind of adapts it in his Myth Became Fact essay. So this is kind of setting the stage for the thesis. Now, the thesis in my book is, again, quoting Lewis, that we feel mythopathically because God is mythopoeic. So for those of you who don't know what that means, this means that God chooses to disclose himself and has ultimately chosen to disclose himself through myth, at least in part. We also know there's a historical side to Christianity. And we were made in God's image, as the book of Genesis tells us. And so we have been designed by this storytelling God to be mythopathic, right? We shouldn't be ashamed, Lewis says elsewhere, of the mythical radiance that rests upon our theology. And I find, Miguel, and I'm sure you agree, a lot of Christians are either ignorant of this mythical radiance or ashamed of it, as Lewis said. So the thesis of my book then addresses this tragic dilemma. It addresses, and, and Tolkien himself, I think, might have been an influence on Lewis's thinking here as well, because in 1931, he helped bring Lewis back from atheism to theism and then to Christianity because of myth. And so let's not discount Tolkien's influence here. But what I think Tolkien has done is he's learned from what one of Tolkien's good friends, Robert Murray, who was a confidant of Tolkien's and a friend of the Tolkien family. He was a Jesuit priest and Tolkien addressed many letters to him. And later he wrote an essay called Tolkien, The Art of the Parable. So I think that Tolkien was a master of this, that he learned it from Jesus, the greatest storyteller, and that he understood that Jesus speaks in parables and spoke in parables because the incarnation itself, himself, was a parable. And I'll talk a little bit more about this later. Um, and that the best possible way I say, page 59, by the way, all page numbers I'm giving today are from the Kindle edition. Uh, but in page 59, I say that, you know, the best possible way God could communicate this awesome truth was to find a way that, that he could say it that was consonant with human nature, that mythopathic sense. And, um, and I think that's kind of the thesis that we're trying to find out how the Lord of the Rings reflects the truth of the Christian worldview, but is also respectful of Tolkien's dislike of allegory, which is an issue we're going to delve into today. Thank you for giving that summary. And I think what's really interesting is that your book then begins to delve into various subjects that kind of all tie together, answers some important questions in Tolkien studies. But also I saw a lot of relevance in what you're writing to the world of aesthetics. And it's dealing with some philosophy of art questions, especially in the way that you unpack a lot of these terms terms that are relevant to the discussion like myth mm -hmm. and parable and fairy story and and so <laughs> allegory yeah there's a lot of important terms and as you're unpacking them and making sense of them in your book i came to realize and i've read a lot less tolkien than you have but i came to realize that through my studies in chesterton and others this is consistent with the philosophy of art that i've been exploring and and so i thought that it would be really helpful to unpack some of those in in our discussion today. So yes, um, I quite agree. Where, where, where do you think we should start then? Yeah, no, so I think from that tragic dilemma and, and thesis, we should probably launch off into a, a, a exploration of mythos because I mentioned this a moment ago in uh, addressing my thesis. So we want to go from myth and then we can talk through allegory and I can throw in some other things there that's going to be relevant for our discussion later about parables and fairy stories, which I figured we kind of conclude on. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Okay, sounds good. So um, I want to read a quote from letter 89 
1989. So for those of you that don't know, Humphrey Carpenter, who has the only authorized biography of J.R.R. Tolkien, but also there's only one authorized collection of uh, the letters of J.R.R. Tolkien. And letter 89, what I'm referring to, is in that said collection. You can find it online on Amazon and, and buy a copy also as an ebook. Uh, in, in this letter, which I think is addressed to one of his sons, if I'm not mistaken, he says, man is redeemed in a manner that is consonant with his nature. And you'll notice that I kind of drew on that in my thesis uh, earlier uh, by a moving story, Tolkien says. We're redeemed by a moving story. But since its author is a supreme artist and author of reality, this one was also made to be true on the primary plane. Now, elsewhere in the letters, uh, Tolkien, I'll provide the number of the letter later, I'm sure, um, I have it somewhere here, describes that his passion has always been from the beginning for myth and not allegory. And so already early in the letters of Tolkien, you get this sense that he has this antipathy, almost, uh, literary hatred for allegory. And there, there have been a lot of books written about Tolkien on this subject. And I wrote this book because I felt that none of them really addressed it adequately and uh, didn't really address this mystery that the Lord of the Rings and, and the rest of the books of uh, Middle-earth are really Christian, but at the same time, they're not explicitly so. And so that's what my book tries to do. So I figured the first thing we should do is unpack what I think, based on uh, Lewis and the influence Tolkien had on Lewis and modern scholarship, especially from a Christian point of view, has to say about myth. And uh, mythos is an ancient Greek term back in Homer and Hesiod's day in the 8th century BC that meant something just like what logos meant at that time. Now, these terms do gradually distance themselves from each other, starting around the 4th century with Plato, um, but uh, they still kind of carry that old meaning of a account about reality. Both mythos and logos mean a true story, uh, a story about the way of things, the way things are. And um, as many scholars have pointed out, a myth is a kind of concrete, imaginative, image-driven experience that's often wordless, okay? And it's not really, of course, possible to tell a myth without words, but it's the images that are contained therein that drive the experience, that it's a concrete and imaginative experience. It really bypasses that abstract, rational, you know, Lewis later talks about sneaking past the rational dragons or uh, the dragons that are keeping watch on our rational mind. And it, it is an in other words, a form of indirect communication. It appeals to the imagination immediately and bypasses reason. Now, some might think, well, does that mean, and this is the modern definition of myth, that it's irrational? And that's not true. I would say that it's non-rational. Okay. That's a big so, difference. And, yeah. and I, I hesitate to stop you because I know we've got a lot to cover, but no, okay. I am curious, would you say then that it's a form of intuition? How, how is it that we're accessing this? Not by yeah. way of reason, not by way of the senses? Is it the a kind of intuition? How how might those two things work, right? Our, mm -hmm. our imagination, I'm thinking of imagination, maybe my understanding of imagination is too narrow. I'm thinking of it as kind of a creative mm -hmm. process. But if we're taking something in, mm -hmm. right, is that tied to the intuition or would you say that's something different? I would say I've heard it both ways. I mean, Paul Gould in Cultural Apologetics, he differentiates the imagination from intuition. He says that it's related to it, but it's not the same thing. Okay. Um, Michael Ward has written uh, an essay about this. Charlie Starr has written about it. And, and gathering data from their works, what I've understood is this. The imagination is the ability to perceive, to picture, to imagine, to event. It's okay. the capacity of our, our, our minds to do that. And it is an intermediary organ of meaning. And that's, again, Lewis, who called it the organ of meaning in one of his uh, silly titles of his essays, Blue Spools and Fluff Flarnanes okay. or something like that. <laughs> and uh, that's what he calls it. 
It's an intermediary, and Ward and Starr have both said that the imagination's job is to take the raw sensory data that we take in through our senses and process it and interpret it for meaning and then pass it off to the faculty of reason, the logos aspect of the mind, which then sorts it out as, because it's already passed the meaning test with the imagination, it then dictates whether it's true or false. That's the okay. faculty of reason's job. Okay. So I think it's an intermediary is uh, the bottom line. So there is a certain intuition, though, is that we can, we can imagine a king. You know, when we, we have that type, that image appear to our mind and we can enter into that image imaginatively and kind of immediately experience it. And I think that's that's definitely part of it. Yes. OK. And that's a great question. By the way, it's one that I struggled with. Now, uh, other scholars like uh, Justin Ariel Bailey's just gotten a book that's come out on this. He goes a whole chapter into the imagination. And, and uh, I would say anybody interested in aesthetics uh, would look into that book. But I think that that'll do for now. And so a myth is also something that is a unified experience that in one in a story in which gives us the ability to experience, uh, you know, imagine and, and think at the same time. And this is what Lewis meant by, uh, and that's a good myth, a well-told myth. And I think Lewis always meant here uh, the Christian myth and, and one that is uh, maybe told from the perspective of a Christian author and that that is what the partial solution to that tragic dilemma is, is a good myth does that. It's a unified experience. Now that we've kind of ironed out myth, where where should we turn next as we're making these distinctions moving toward yeah. something like allegory? I know mm -hmm. there's a lot of discussion regarding Tolkien's view of allegory and whether oh, yes. or not the Lord of the Rings can appropriately be called such. And so, yes, um, I think that would be the natural place okay. we go next. I think it was, I read, or just was looking this up earlier today. I was trying to remember the ancient Greek author that was referenced, but I think it was Theon, or maybe it was Aesop. I'm trying to remember one of the two is, uh, is quoted in a book by Klein Snodgrass, uh, Stories with Intent, I think it's called. And he, he points out in his book, in the introduction, which is this whole book about parables, that allegory and parable really are, are interchangeable terms as classification terms. What we say of one, we can really say of the other. And this is what's going to start off our conversation about allegory. That is, we could either work with a typology of allegories or a typology of parables. This is his case. And he thinks a lot of ink has been spilled about trying to make them mutually exclusive. Now, we are going to distinguish between allegorical language and metaphorical language, which might kind of show that there is a difference between or among whatever classification we choose, different types of said story. But to say that they're completely separate, I think, is really, scholars have failed at it. I don't think it's necessary. But he also says that whether we choose a, a, a classification of allegories or parables, allegory and parables are subsets of mythos. They're mythoi. That is, they're related to myth. Okay? They're... Um, and this is the reference to Theon, I think, and Aesop, or one of the two that he makes, is that ancient records show us that these literary forms are considered subsets of mythos. All right, so that's the very general introduction. Now, allegory is technically, it's a compound Greek word, means anything that speaks of something else. That's literally what it means. And Joseph Pierce, who's a Catholic Tolkien scholar, has uh, pointed this out in his book on Tolkien. He says that every word we speak is technically an allegory. Okay, so in one sense of the term, yes, everything is an allegory in life. We can't have direct access to experience through any kind of language in reality, which is a pretty powerful metaphysical point. He also says that in another sense, the Lord of the Rings and, and that sense of allegory is a kind of allegory. But in another sense, it isn't. And we're going to find out in just a second, that's because Tolkien had strong opinions about it. And so now we're going to start to kind of sort through this. Okay, allegory, we've established what that is. Let's talk about, I think, what Tolkien's opinion of allegory was. And he, he never gets very specific, except in letter 
131 where he says, I've always disliked allegory, the conscious and intentional kind. That's the one that he, he, he never, to my knowledge, and I've looked up and down, ever is that specific. He always just kind of says allegory and allegorical, and we'll talk about the distinction later, but he never gets that specific again. And so it's very clear, this is the specific kind of allegory that he dislikes. And Lewis, to his credit, who I think was influenced by Tolkien, also makes this distinction that it's intentionality that really makes the difference between what Lewis said is a, a great myth and allegory. You know, an allegory is very intentional. It's very in your face. It's very direct. And it's very transparent, incredibly so, to the reality that it's seeking to portray. And so Lewis also comments on this. So question now, on, yeah. on intentionality there, and this is probably probably a much too simplistic way of explaining. But when we talk about allegory, uh, it, when I talk to my students about it, I kind of tell them there's two stories, right? And I mean, like in a building sense, but there's also two stories actually going on. And so oh, you have okay. one story in the upper story and you have one yes. story in the lower story. You're reading the lower story mm -hmm. while the upper story is happening. So mm -hmm. the intentionality, um, am I right in thinking, okay, if it's too intentional in the negative sense that Tolkien's talking about. That's right. Yeah. Then there's too much being given of the upper story in the account yes, rather than exactly. just allowing that to be implied in some way. There are not cracks in the story. There are gaping holes. Okay. And, and okay. you can look up and say, oh, that's not supposed to be there. There's something yeah. else going on up there. Yeah, right, right. Exactly. right. <laughs> I like your okay. analogy. Yeah, okay. it's really yeah. good. Um, it also makes me think of Francis Schaeffer uh, with his two-story analogy. Right, truth. sure. That's a, another, that's a good yeah. one. Um, that's a really great uh, image. Kind of proving a point is that anybody can picture that, right? It's an image right. and immediately now we understand we're experiencing this image you've given us. And when we're experiencing it, we're not thinking about it. But then when we think about it, it's like we want that image back. Right. And this is that tragic dilemma at work. So that's right. So I think um, that's that's not uh, a bad at all. Uh, it's an excellent uh, understanding of it. And of course, it's authorial intent. And that's what both Tolkien and Lewis really meant. And uh, in that same letter, letter 131, Tolkien says, even that, he says, the more deliberately an allegory is told, you know, the more, uh, how does he put it exactly? Let me see if I can get it. Yeah, he says, uh, here it is. Of course, while the better a deliberate allegory is made, the more nearly will it be acceptable as just a story, which is what we don't want, arguably, unless it is to just remind you of something you already know. And right. that's something I'll talk about later is the function of a, of a whole total allegory is to already kind of just remind you, it's not to teach you new things, it's to just remind you of what you already know. And, and that's what Tolkien was not trying to do. He wants to expand and extend the Christian understanding and make it more of a uh, truly myth logical experience, not just a, you know, this for that experience. All right. So I want to work through some th other things that Tolkien said about allegory. I'll try to make this succinct. He says, so if somebody asked me the question, as somebody do, how can any Tolkien scholar argue that the Lord of the Rings is an allegory? Because what I end up doing is saying that as a subset of mythos, we either have to choose in the way that I've set things up and done my research is we can either choose a, there are different kinds of allegories or there are different kinds of parables. The result is the same. What we ultimately need to do is find two different kinds of stories and terminology is always hard. It doesn't matter what we call it, Sure. but we need to be able to describe one type of story and how it works versus another. Whether we call them two different allegories or parables, according to Snodgrass and others is really beside the point. So 
I've picked allegory because this is a term that is just pervasive. And also, as I'll show in a second, Tolkien calls the Lord of the Rings an allegory. And this is something I was just listening to a talk last night where the scholar, Tolkien scholar, didn't know this. And I wanted to scream it and say, but he does say it's an allegory. Right. I think the letter here is letter 186. He says, my, my Lord of the Rings is, of course, it's not an allegory of atomic power, but of power exerted for domination's sake. And Joseph Pierce was the first to point this out to me. And when I learned that and put this together with everything else, it started to make sense that it was only one type of allegory that Tolkien disliked. So now we've got another one on the radar and we're going to have to get to that in our conclusion today of oh, what is that? What do we call that other type of allegory that's opposite the conscious and intentional? Because obviously he's not saying it's a conscious intentional one. So what kind is it? Right. Well, let's look at the evidence. What better way than to just let Tolkien speak for himself? Now we're lucky that he does. So here's what he says. So we have letter 186, the admission that it is an allegory, just not of that. We have him saying that his passion was for myth and not allegory. So there's a connection between myth and allegory, this unified experience, this kind of allegory he's referring to, of course. And then uh, elsewhere, he says that Lord of the Rings is a fairy story. So it's like, wow, okay, how do we sort this out? And that's letter 181. He says, of course, the Lord of the Rings is a fairy story. He says, it has its own mode of reflecting truth different from allegory. Now, hold on. I know I'm confused. Is Tolkien saying it has its own mo mode fairy story of reflecting truth aside from allegory? Which kind of allegory? The mysterious one we don't know yet or the conscious one? Right. I think it has to be the conscious one. Right? He's saying that fairy story is is different than the conscious allegory. Right. We right. still don't have an answer though, other than fairy story. We could just stop there and say, well, fairy story is a subset of allegory and it's it's that other mysterious one. But I think there are some other clues that can also make us draw a connection between fairy story and parable. And at the end of the day, I think whether we call it one or the other is kind of two ways of saying the same thing. So the conclusion I drew from this is the following, that Lord of the Rings is uh, both a type of allegory, mysterious kind. Uh, it's associated with myth. It's also identified if it's an allegory it's also a fairy story so they seem to have some synergy and then we bring in murray's work tolkien and the art of the parable is an essay that he wrote for this hundredth uh, celebration of tolkien's birth in 1992 he gave a sermon at thanksgiving and it became an essay and in it he makes a connection between fairy story and parable in tolkien's works now he addresses allegory too and i'll get to that later but so now we have this connection. Lord of the Rings is an allegory, a subset of myth. It's not the conscious and intentional kind. It's another kind. It's basically synonymous with the fairy story. Well, we could stop there. And I think that would be fine for many Tolkien scholars, but I'm as a, as a Christian and as a scholar of the Bible, at least I think a lower scholar, I'm not, I didn't get a degree in it, but it's been my area of study in the humanities. My interest is in this essay that Murray wrote. There is something to this connection between fairy story and parable, and no one has really explored it in depth. I have found nothing, and I searched high and low. And so my work is unique in that it makes that connection and develops what Murray identified. Uh, he only devoted like 15 pages to it. I devote a whole book. Um, right. So, so you've, you've ar you argue in your book, and again, I want to encourage people to check that out because I, I, I do think it's, it is a major contribution that the book makes to, to the discussion in Tolkien studies. But can you tell us, because now we've introduced this idea of parable. Mm -hmm. When I hear the word parable, I'm sure the, you know, others who hear the word parable, you know, you know that Jesus taught in parables. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we tend to, to kind of uh, associate it with maybe more antiquated language. So mm -hmm. how should we be thinking about parable? What is a parable? Well, like allegory, it's a type of myth. And I'm going to argue, based on my research on myth, uh, from a Christian point of view, uh, like the works of Ward and Starr that I referred to and Lewis's work on it, 
that a parable is really an archetypal myth. Okay, that is, it is a, uh, we described earlier myth as a unified experience that addresses the tragic dilemma. And other scholars have said that a parable is a linguistic incarnation, like its teller, the incarnation himself. And so that connection is important because the incarnation is a unification of God and man, right? And yet they're separate, okay? And then we have that paradox at the heart of, of, uh, of Christianity. So putting all that together too, we need a little bit more specificity. So we're kind of seeing that a parable is a type of myth that is, I think, a particularly good one at communicating the, the content of the Christian worldview. It almost seems like a divine conspiracy in a sense, that it is an incarnational story form. But what it literally means is thrown from the side or to cast alongside or compare Comparison. And the parabole, uh, the, the Greek word comes from when it's translated out of the Hebrew, the Hebrew background of this is mishal. And it's interesting, I talk about it in my book, and I, I found this astounding, that when the New Testament authors were, you know, thinking of the Hebrew equivalent, and even they had the Septuagint, I know that, but mishal has a really interesting background in meaning something like a reign of a king, uh, resemblance between God and man. And so it's very interesting to see the Semitic background yeah. of the word, yeah, can mean uh Reign, like R-E-I-G-N, reign, reign of a king, resemblance, comparison, which is obviously which brings us to the Greek meaning of parable. But this thrown from the side definition too means that most of all, it's a, a type of communication we call indirect communication. So it's 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 myth. It's because right. all myth is indirect communication, but it's a special kind of myth. And I think that's a good start. Okay. Yeah. For parable. Yeah. I have more to say, but I wanted to pause there. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's good. That's that's helpful. All right. So what else I can say about parable is that it's a story that I think takes place in, in both the realms of thinking and experiencing. It's, as I said, a truly mythological story. It's a type of indirect speech. It gives us this tasting and knowing experience at the same time. And I, uh, I quote here Sally McFaig, who is a biblical scholar who wrote a, a book, I think, in the 70s called Speaking in Parables, which I was able to find. And she says, a New Testament parable is a linguistic incarnation. And like its teller, who himself was the parable of God, works by indirection. That's a kind of a great summary. But uh, elsewhere, she says too, that the only legitimate way of speaking of the incursion of the divine into history is metaphorically. And so this gets us to uh, another feature of the parable, which is that as a myth, I think it, we can say that it obviously contains, and I'm, I'm arguing also that parable, in my understanding, is a subset of allegory, which is a subset of myth, um, has allegorical language in it, but it also has metaphorical language. And I'd like to make a distinction that I think think uh, is important here that will draw us to some features of Tolkien's writing. And it's, it'll take just a minute. So I would say, obviously, any kind of allegory is going to have allegorical language. But uh, what I've learned is that allegorical language is more direct. It's more translucent. So what really interests me is metaphorical language. But just to summarize, allegorical language is very clear references. So like in the Chronicles of Narnia, the references to the Pevensey children as the sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. Now, it's never always that, it's not always that way, but that's a very clear crack in the story. Very explicit, yeah. Exactly. That's an example of allegorical language. It's actually more like, it's indirect, but it's direct. It's, it's weird. Sure. Um, but metaphorical language, which a good story, a good parable, a good myth, alternates between these two kinds of language, is saying one thing's one thing in terms that is suggestive, but not exactly of another. And this is what metaphorical language, it's not substitutionary, this for that, that's more allegorical. It's this, that, question mark. And metaphorical knowledge, uh, sorry, metaphorical language advances knowledge about a subject and expands it. It doesn't just remind us of what we already know, like what we already know Adam and Eve are, you know, why didn't you call the 
the Pevensey children, the son of, I don't know, some mythological name. Right. Made up. Some, yeah. Right. Right. So I think a parable, and I think all of these, these, these stories have, they alternate between the language, but in a good and a well-told myth, a good well-told allegory, if you will, what I'm arguing the parable slash fairy story is, is the author constantly switching, constantly keeping you on your toes. And this is something that many Tolkien scholars have pointed out, but haven't peeled back the layers to understand that the allegorical correspondences, when we do see them, and they are there, and I address many of them in my book, but they break down. And just as soon as we're tracing it, we're like, oh, this is just like the Virgin Mary, or this is just like, uh, you know, uh, idols uh, in the Bible, or this is just like the exile to Babylon. Then you're like, oh, no, it's not. Right. You know? Uh, well, that's right. just like Noah. No, it's not actually, but it is, but it's not. Right. And that's what Tolkien is really good at doing. He, as um, you know, Heiser, and, and I like the way he put it when we talked, he said, Tolkien kind of puts something on the table, then he takes it away. And it's like, well, we'll put that back. You know, that, that was interesting. I see that flash of insight. So, so in a way, we could say that Tolkien's religion, Tolkien's philosophy is heavily influencing. And, and I think it's important to understand that word influence, right? So, mm-hmm. so it's heavily influencing what he's writing, but it is not Dominated. exactly what he's writing, right? It's exactly. a, he's not just using different words to say the exact same thing beautiful way to put it. And he says elsewhere in his letters, he says these two things. He says, of course, uh, author's beliefs are going to be reflected in the story. And he says uh, elsewhere that I've kept uh, matters, allusions to the highest matters. He addressed this letter to Murray, actually, down to mere hints, only perceptible to the most attentive. Then elsewhere, he says... um, Oh, he says a lot of these similar kinds of things. Oh, he says, I have deliberately created this story out of certain religious ideas, though you know, not explicit. Uh, and on and on it goes. These comments, right. once you order them all, as I've done in my book, to make this case, even though I'll admit the terminology is really clunky. Myth, subset of myth is allegory or parable. We've chosen allegory. We have a conscious and intentional allegory. We have the parable slash fairy story over here. Yes, it, it, it's like when Lewis was trying to, uh, when he told Owen Barfield, I think, he was trying to say, we need a, a better word than, we need another word for just myth. We need something else to distinguish this from that. Or, uh, you know, um, I forget what it was exactly, but Lewis was trying to find a different term other than mythology. And uh, he came up with something like mythonomy or something like that. And he was struggling to, to differentiate subtleties. And it's arguably very clunky what I've done, but that's what where the evidence led me. Sure. Oh, I think ultimately. Uh, and and again, for those uh, listening, and I know you go into greater depth in this in, in mm-hmm. your book, obviously. Um, but those who might be concerned with your use of parable, yes, does it seem to you like when they hear parable, they're hearing something like a conscious and intentional yes. allegory? Is exactly. That, yeah. Yes, because yeah. um, as N.T. Wright has pointed out, and many others that often a parable is thought to just be a story with a moral in it, this or that, or a story, an earthly story with heavenly meanings. Uh, as you said, the two stories, right? Earth, heaven, and well, look away from here, just look there. That's all, right. that's all it's about. And that's, that's not what I mean. So I think what you said is excellent. Yes, um, I think most people are going to think without the terminology, but they're going to speak of parable and think of parable as Tolkien thought of conscious and intentional allegory. Right. I think that's okay. exactly what people are thinking. So I think from here, really, the, the rest of the time, um, I'd love to hear your further questions, but just- Yeah, to, absolutely. Go ahead. Make that, uh, no, no, just to finish that connection between parable and fairy story. Yeah, and so I thought this would be a good time for us to dive in. What is it then? that sets apart fairy story and parable in this Mm -hmm. sense that you mean it 
mm-hmm. from what what Tolkien I think is the one that used the language of conscious and intentional mm-hmm. allegory, right? So so I, like you said, there's this kind of mysterious allegory that he seems to indicate his writings fall into that category, and mm-hmm. yet we know there's this other conscious and intentional allegory that he was very adamant his writings are not and and he wasn't a fan of of writing that fell into that category so 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 what what is the key distinction then yeah so i mean i think there's a couple but i think it's clear based on the evidence we compiled let's just review that again tolkien calls the lord of the rings a fairy story explicitly in his letters he also uh more suggestively but nevertheless calls the lord of the rings a type of allegory When we put that together and then we look at the Murray essay and we put those three pieces of evidence together alone, aside from all the other things, we have a very clear connection that fairy story is a type of allegory over and against the conscious and intentional. And that based on Murray's investigation, fairy story and parable are at least similar, if not analogous. So now what distinguishes, now we have our allegory spectrum. Let's just hypothetically say on one end, we have the conscious and intentional. Well, conscious and intentional allegory is the purposed dominion or domination of the author. Tolkien says this in his forward to the second edition of the Lord of the Rings. And that's why he dislikes it. This is also why Lewis dislikes it. Uh, And what he says in his many letters and and writings on myth is that this is that key distinction between a really well-told myth and allegory. And I think Lewis also always, when he used the term allegory, he meant the same thing Tolkien meant by conscious and intentional is that it's so overwhelmingly explicit or it tries to be clever, but it's not. Um, It's very clear that the worldview of the author is transparently viewable through the uh, flimsy cookie cutter characters, themes, events, institutions, etc. in the story. And it, again, it's these kinds of stories have their use. Let me be clear. I don't talk a lot about this in my book, but my research has shown and my, my notes that I have left over from my book show that the usefulness of this story, as much as he disliked it, is that it helps people who are already kind of confirmed in their beliefs. And I would say that's not always a good thing. It, it doesn't challenge us. It, it, it kind of reassures us. It, it tells us everything is normal. Everything is okay. And you think of uh, Pil- Pilgrim's Progress or even elements of the Narnia book, that this is the hope that we, Jesus has given us. And that's good. It has its place, but that's not what Tolkien was trying to do. And I think it's because he thought there was something intrinsically inadequate about it uh, based on what i've said and so um that's just some musings on that end on the i'd I'd like to pause there for a second um so would it be fair to say and it seems like you're a little more sympathetic to it than tolkien was but would it be fair to say like tolkien sees this spectrum Mm. but he sees those conscious and intentional allegories as in a sense failing as Mm. their proper form Um, he says as much okay (laughs) okay so so you're more sympathetic to its possible uses but tolkien was not he he i don't think so i i mean he he comes across as a as a good polite englishman sure of course it's indirectly i I hate this kind of story right because i cordially dislike but that's a mid 20th yeah. century nice right. way of saying what yeah. you know damn it i hate that story today you know <laughs> right. so um i think yeah. uh and he was soft-spoken you know so sure. it wasn't his way but um, right there, there was something i was going to say um Oh, he, he, he pinpoints Arthurian, medieval Arthurian sagas, uh, romances, as uh, containing in its solution explicit moral and religious truth. And he says, yep. this is the fatal flaw. I talk about this in the first chapter, I think, of my book or intro. The fatal flaw is that for a story to have that, what he's referring to there is that clear, crisp, allegorical language 
but so much that it begins to dominate the whole composition. And so Tolkien, I think, also made a distinction between allegory as a composition, where all of its parts add up, the, all of the language is dominated by the allegorical mode. That's the other thing. Mode is the way the language is being used. It, it so dominates the whole composition that it is that composition. And uh, I think that's what he thought of Arthurian legend uh, and writings. I'm thinking probably Chrétien de Troyes um, and I'm trying to think, is it Mallory, Sir Thomas Mallory? I, some of the English and French sagas in the Middle Ages. And he just thought that these are not going to do it. So yeah, I am more sympathetic. I do think they have their place. But I think that uh, now we should talk about what he says on fairy and his essay on fairy stories. Yep. Um, okay. Yeah. I mean, it's a great, just a question that you asked though. I mean, there is a place for this kind of story. Right. And I think it's important that people do know that. So, okay. So what does Tolkien say? What is a fairy story? Well, he says, I will not attempt to describe it. There's your answer. Right. Yeah. <laughs> He's not going to do it. Yeah. He says, uh, ha ha, gotcha suckers. Uh, it cannot be done. Um, <laughs> he says, no, I'm not doing it. And then he goes on and he says, I'm not equipped to do it. Uh, he says, for fairy cannot be caught in a net of words. One of its qualities is to be indescribable, though not imperceptible. That is also what I would submit in my New Testament scholarship research for this book is how a lot of scholars describe a parable. Sally McFaig uh, describes it in so many ways like that, uh, that it's a unification of strange and unfamiliar and, and on one end and familiar uh, on the other, that the incarnation is itself kind of that, and that it's a story that is also very metaphysical, that it takes place in both worlds. Tolkien goes on to say that fairy contains not only elves and fays and giants and dragons, and it also contains the sun, the moon, trees, physical, sensory things, the imaginatively real and the rationally real, the non-rational and the rational. Though he says these rational sensory objects that we interact with are enchanted. And, and he mentions men and, and elves in, in the same sentence there too. So he also describes fairy, the world of fairy. So this is close to a definition as a truly metaphysical two world, two realm story. It takes place in kind of heaven on earth. It's a story set on the boundaries of our world, but in the world to be the world that once was and will be again. Um, and so it has that restorative quality that, you know, uh, Miguel, he goes into recovery escape and consolation in the right. essay. Yeah. And those are all very important aspects of a parable as well. Um, and so I would say those those are some other similarities connecting fairy story and parable. And again, the, the statement about fairy containing all these things and, and what, what's been said about a parable, which I say so much more in my book, I think it's, it's, it's also communicating this thing I made at the outset of our talk, that it's a unified experience. It has, and it satisfies the rationalist and the romantic in us. It right. satisfies the imaginatively real, the image base, the concrete, the experiences, but also the abstract logos love of reason in us. It, it's a world that it's on the borders of the world we live in. So it's just real enough, just familiar enough, but it also shows us the world that was and the world that will be, right. the, the heaven on earth. Yeah, yeah it, it understands that for us to understand, for us to be able to even engage with it mm -hmm. at some level, it needs to be a lot like our world. Yes, um, so there's gravity, but there's mm -hmm. also going to be being that fly right and and so and so there's this idea that there's a lot of working assumptions from our own world mm -hmm. that we can take in uh, that allow us to make sense of a world we've never encountered before. And so, yes, exactly um, so, right. so there is this back and forth. It, it exactly. allows us to, to make enough sense of it, but introduces us to things that, that are brand new and, and that at times seem crazy, right? They mm -hmm. seem, you know, unbelievable and yet yes. uh, rooted, grounded within things that we take for granted every day. Yes. 
exactly right. And and that's how it's able to restore, you know, in his review of The Lord of the Rings, Lewis said just that, is that when you dip ordinary objects, and this goes back to Tolkien's description of fairy and fairy story, when you dip ordinary objects into myth, they become enchanted. And the more they linger in our mind, the more they are themselves, the more real they will be. Um, and I think this goes back to that unitive experience that dissolves the split between subject and object, thinking and experiencing abstract and concrete. And it, that is truly an incarnational story. It's the way things ought to be. And so I'll, I'll quote Dr. Charlie W. Starr, who uh, I've got coming on my cast soon. And he, he says, man is not a myth. And that is a tragic, sad fact. Uh, yeah. And I love that. Yeah. I love that statement. We are not mythical. And a modern person would be like, well, that's a good thing. No, it's not. Right. I mean, it's good we're not mythical in the modern sense, but sure. in the, the sense we've talked about it today, um, yeah. it's a very sad fact. Yeah, that's good. And I, I will definitely post a link in the in the show notes so that people can access your podcast. You've already got a few episodes up and mm-hmm. and so you've got a few more coming soon. So yeah. uh, I definitely want to yeah. encourage people to check that out. Okay, Thank so you. one of the things that occurred to me as I was reading your book, and mm-hmm. you know, I, I very easily get into nerd mode and I get excited about these things. Things. But but okay. one of the things that, that stood out to me is, um, so Isaiah Berlin uh, has a book called The Roots of Romanticism. And mm-hmm. in it, he talks about the romantic kind of understanding of symbol. And, and as he talked about symbol, he, and it's really interesting. So he talks about kind of the, and he uses very specific language about like kind of the the very uh, spe- specific, explicit kind of symbol. And mm-hmm. then he doesn't actually label the other kind of symbol, which is seems to be exactly what you're talking about. We have this <laughs> mysterious thing over here, right? Yeah. So he doesn't yep. really give us a label for it, but he describes I... the two of them, right? Okay, yeah. And so, yeah. And so you look at the first kind of symbol. Again, we're thinking more along the lines of, of something visual, right? So mm-hmm. as opposed to the, the lines of thinking that we have for literature. So the idea is, uh, you know, green means go, right? Mm-hmm. Red means stop. So, so, so there's very explicit symbols where mm-hmm. we have substituted a word with a symbol that communicates the exact same idea, right? Precisely. So, so yeah. that's a kind of symbol that we yes, have. Ab- absolutely. Mm-hmm. The kind of symbol that the romantics were about, and, and I think we can really push it further back. Some would want to say the Middle Ages. I mm-hmm. think you're making an argument. We can go as far back as you want to go with mm-hmm. the idea of myth is he said, for example, one's nation's flag waving in the air. There's, oh. there's a kind of meaning there. And I can throw out words, you know, so in the United States of America, we might think freedom, we might think, you know, independence, we might think democracy, we might think all these. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but but more these, these universal terms, right? Yes, Not, nothing right. specific. And whatever word I throw out there isn't going to quite capture the feeling, but we can dance around it, right? We can kind of circle around it. Oh. You know, when one sees the bald eagle the bald eagle represents so much to the united states beyond just right. it being the nation's bird right like yes. there, there's something more that's being represented there and oh, this so is interesting yeah and so 
I saw these parallels as I'm reading your book. I'm like, this is what Berlin was talking about. And so it it led me to think there's something going on, not just in the visual, not just in the literary, but in art that is saying, and and I don't want you to feel like you have to be attached to this. This is my own claim. Yeah. Good art is the kind that pushes us towards that feeling, that experience like the flag waving in the air that can't be quite put into words. So we are not merely saying oh art communicates something that we Mm -hmm. could easily just also put into propositions that's Um, exactly and so similarly Tolkien's story isn't something we can just list out a bunch of propositions and say well i don't need to read the story anymore right it's like the flag it's like the bald eagle it's like those um he even talks about beautiful uh churches and mosques right Mm. when you see them it's not just a place of worship right it resembles something the transcendent it it resembles holiness it resembles something right that that we can't quite put into words this Um, is really really good um let me let me just interject because yeah um there there i I mentioned the uh, cologne cathedral or Cologne cathedral yes uh, my german's real rusty um in in chapter five of my book uh, because I was arrested by this comparison that uh, Bishop Robert Barron gave in his book on Catholicism about it. And so I, I cited it. I thought it was an appropriate way to start that chapter. So I get that. And and this this is actually what uh, Dr. Starr's research, he, he argues that a good myth is uh, not just, a, as you were saying, Berlin says too, uh, communicated in propositions, but in wordless. It's a wordless language. Right. It's, right. it's image-based. And here's the, the thing about the flag. So that's one point. But in my book, I quote McFay, that biblical scholar I mentioned earlier saying, and she writes of Tolkien's book and in her book, which is called Speaking in Parables, she, I should say, this is another line of evidence. She identified the Lord of the Rings as a parabolic novel. That's why I picked up that strand of of research and said, okay, Let's talk about how that is. Yeah. Yeah. And I I obviously cite her for for proper, um, she's the first one to point that out to my knowledge. But here's what else she says. She says of it that in that story, we have to let it be what it is. And I talk about this as one thing. We have to let the story be what it is. And when we do that, it will communicate its Christian content. But the way it does that is that the, the meaning of the symbols is largely unassigned. That's the word that just flickered into my mind as you were talking. We, we, see, we see the flag, but it, it's not assigned like the green light is, right? But you could even argue too, the green light could to other people if they were taught, you know, that it means stop, right? But the whole sure. point is that the flag doesn't just have patriotism as a meaning. Sure. That would be an assigned meaning. That's all it means. That's it. Right. No, it's, it's not, as you, as you pointed out. And yeah. so I think that's Another yeah, and we point. use our language, and I think it's fair. Yeah. I think, um, and, and in a sense, you defend doing this in your book because mm-hmm. people say, "Well, you're not supposed to do that," and then yet you're laying out some of the symbols, some of the, yeah. you know, and, and and. But I think that's fair because what we're doing is we're doing our best mm. with the acknowledgement that our language is limited, and we're not. It, yep. We can't replace it, right? So no. I can't replace you standing before a beautiful painting and experiencing Mm. it just by my talking about it. Just like you can't replace the reading of Tolkien's works by simply talking about them in your own book. But we can use our language to at least try and point us to certain things, maybe orient us to Mm -hmm. toward kind of trying to figure it out. And you actually, I didn't stop you because you you were um, covering some really important things, but you mentioned earlier 
Tolkien, how he removed some of the more explicit things. But he said, you know, that that like the careful observer Mm -hmm. will catch something. So he's even expecting you to do that kind of thing, right? So, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, no, real quick. And uh, on your use of, you know, okay, well, you shouldn't do what I've done, but you have to. Well, Tolkien says something about that. He says any attempt to explain the the purpose or purport, he says, uh, or meaning of fairy story, fairy story and myth must use allegorical language. You, you, to, the only proper way to interpret metaphor is through more metaphor, or that's what I think he was saying. But, you know, it's interesting. He's like, you can't not do this. And no literature is self-interpreting. So what I've said in several podcasts is that, look, I've written this book after over a decade of being influenced by this reading of this story. Right. I didn't um, figure all this out in a day or a year. And it, it is not a replacement. It, it is something for those of us who want to know how it works after scratching our heads and or banging our heads proverbially against the wall wondering how did Tolkien do this? And because I want to be arrested by the beauty and the magnificence of what he did, because it, it is truly an enchantment that he weaves. And and and, um, and this is why Peter Kreft is able to say in his book, you know, if you love the Lord of the Rings, you unconsciously love the Christian story. That's how good uh, or well told and well crafted the story world of Middle Earth is. Uh, it's brilliant. So there's nothing Excellent. like it. Yeah, yeah, there's just nothing like it. I think that it was just really interesting, uh, you know, to kind of see those two things colliding mm-hmm. that we have it in the visual arts we have it in the in literature and i think it it then does speak to art in itself like this is part of what art does art yes. is symbolic and there is the conscious and intentional to take tolkien's language mm-hmm. and then there is the more you know mysterious kind and 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 chesterton actually talks about you know the possible objection that says well then then if we can just talk about it right or or perhaps we're better off just talking about things because if we can't put it into words then mm-hmm. how can we really narrow it down? And Chesterton says that's somebody who's just putting way too much value in what we're able to accomplish with language, right? Mm. With, with our words. Um, wow. It is a yeah, form that's... of communicating. Sure. Um, art is a form of communicating. And we have to understand it is a different form of communicating. So yes. it's not inferior or superior to our language, to, to speaking, right? but rather it's a different form of communication and we need to and understand it as such. And I love what you've just said. I couldn't agree more. And I think that in some cases, in the case of trying to communicate the Christian worldview, it may be superior um, in, one, in one way because we're trying to communicate that God is the incarnation, that yeah. God became sure. man. So we pick a form that is in its form a unified experience, what it means to say in its content, content, incarnation. And that's why I've written my book is to make that connection. I've seen all of these scholars, this scholar, biblical scholarship, this Tolkien scholar gets a quarter of the way, a small percentage of the way there and never fully develops it. And so I took all of these wonderful ideas that seem to be roads into the mist and pointed them somewhere uh, to a destination, I think, is is a compelling analysis of how Tolkien did this. And it, it is still very, I think, delicate and, and done in a way that respects his dislike of allegory. Yep. Um, That's good. Yeah. I also yeah. think you're, you're, just for a point of clarification, I, I sure. agree with you. When I say that one isn't superior to the other, oh, yeah. um, I do want to acknowledge 100% some messages are meant to be communicated 
in one form or another. What mm, I mean right. by one not being superior to the other is um, that the fact that they're different um, right. doesn't make one necessarily better than oh, yeah. the other just in and of themselves. Some things are yeah. are important to speak, right? Um, yes. Some things are important to be said plainly. Propositions mm-hmm. are important. Mm-hmm. So, so, so my point being in their nature, uh, or in their essence, rather, it's not sure. that one is necessarily better than the other, but well, I, I agree completely. But they are, um, and I think part of the task for humans mm. is to figure out which mode mm-hmm. uh, best communicates the yes. particular message that's being dealt with. So and I figured that. I figured yeah, that's yeah, I just I figured, figured I would, I would clarify. Oh, of course, um, yeah. So. As we come towards the end here, mm-hmm. um, I thought we could maybe wrap up by looking at this question. I think a lot of what we've said has already kind of touched on it, but um, you write in your book that for myth and fairy stories, the meaning is tied to the form. And I think yes. we were just kind of talking about that, but I think maybe just bringing some sure. clarity to that. What did you mean by that? And, and yeah. I think there's implications there for art more broadly. Yeah, I'm just going to pull up my notes here. There's yeah. a couple of things I wanted to say, but um, what I've, I think I've already said that, you know, and this is on uh, page 23 of my book, if everything in reality, uh, according to Christian typology, in some way points to Christ, but in some things more than other, uh, and Christ is the incarnation, then the best possible way to communicate that would be through a type of communication that is informed what it w- wishes to say in content. That is to find an incarnational unified or uh, way of communicating, a truly mythological myth. And so going back just for a second to the superior thing, I, I completely agree with you. And I think a truly good myth, it will look at the word mythologos, it's mythos and logos together. It's going to have the logos enfolded as Alistair McGrath has said, I like the way he says this, into the myth. And so it's going to appeal both to the imagination and to the intellect. And that's that unified experience I'm talking about. And so what I mean by the form being what it is in form, what it wishes to say in content has also been pointed out by uh, as great New Testament scholars such as N.T. Wright, who has uh, really looked at the argument of parables as a earthly stories with heavenly meanings and demolished that and said, look, it is, it's not that. It, it is uh, what it wishes to say in content, it is in its form, is that we look at this unified experience. Can you remember a time when you can think and experience? Well, those times are in the midst of a great story that really transports you to inhabit that sacramental vision that the author is painting for you. Can you remember a time when the subjective objective split was really kind of dissolved? Can you, when, when you're reading your scripture and you see, um, you know, in the new creation glimpse that the prophet Isaiah gets, and you can glimpse that heaven and earth are really going to be one. Well, okay, a parable as a truly mythological form gives us tastes of all those things. And that's why we love them. And that's what N.T. Wright means. And and what I've repeated that he and other scholars have said over and over again, that we need to understand the parable as a archetypal mythological form that is in its form what it wishes to say in its content is that the metaphor is the message. The parable is the message. It's it's like, hello, Jesus didn't go around saying I'm God. The parables say that, right? That's that's the whole indirect approach. He's, right. he's pointing back to himself by not talking about himself. And I think this is just such profound uh, way of communication because what um, scholars who study indirect communication conclude, which is really what this is an example of, this form and content question you've asked me is it's a form of misdirection or indirection. And what it it gives us in the words of uh, several scholars, um, Benson Fraser, 
wrote a book called uh, Sacred, uh, no, Hide and Seek. And in it, he, he talks about Kierkegaard who loved indirect communication. He says, indirect communication gives us chance to pause and, and really meditate and reflect on what the story is. And that's what we've, what Tolkien's done with the Lord of the Rings and what we experience when we're in it is that it, it's taken me years to meditate on this. And so I've been hearing this, this parable told to me over many years and it's taken me this long to really understand it. And that's why I'm sharing it with others, others because I, I want you to understand that. But I think even me unpacking it isn't going to be enough. I know it's not. You need to experience this for yourself. And that's that's true true to the literary form we've discussed here. You need to taste it for yourself. That's good. Um, so yeah. I, I'd, I'd like to just point out uh, two or three things kind of in closing and, and feel mm -hmm. free to just uh, make any comments here sure. based on, on some of the conclusions I'm beginning to draw. And again, it just kind of lined up nicely with some of the things you were writing and some of the research that I've been doing in mm -hmm. the world of aesthetics. But so, you know, there, there's a lot of uh, criticisms of contemporary art and things like that, that I think sometimes are superficial um, matters of taste and things like that. So I want to always be careful to not sure. just kind of jump on that bandwagon, never become just the old angry guy who's upset that things are different, right? But <laughs> but if we're right in some of the, the things we've suggested in, in the episode today, then if art is communication, mm -hmm. uh, it seems there are good ways and poor ways of communicating a message, right? So 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 now we've got something to, to discuss when we're mm -hmm. standing before a work of art or reading through a work of literature. That's right. Um, it also seems then that when we go to, for example, uh, a contemporary art museum, and all that you have on a wall is a block of text, right? And, and this is a visual arts museum. This is, you know, that there is a metaphysical, philosophical statement being made mm -hmm. when someone chooses to remove the symbol mm -hmm. and, and just plainly state mm -hmm. the message. There is, and, and so one can engage with that without necessarily being superficial or just being an angry person who doesn't like change. But, but it seems like there's meaningful concerns that can be drawn out when yes. contemporary art moves in that direction or moves in the other direction where mm -hmm. you have what appears to be a symbol, mm -hmm. but there is no logos attached to it. There's no way of making sense what that symbol is actually conveying. Right. Yeah, that's an excellent uh, analogy too, I think, to, to imagine oneself in a museum like that to, uh, to draw this conclusion. So I agree. Um, and, and I think uh, a true effective apologetic and 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 just a storyteller will tell a, a story that is truly mythological that will give us images that are wordless but also give us words and I'm reminded you know Lewis uh, when he talked about the myth of Balder which was so influential to him he said you know we're not going to remember the kinds of languages the myth was written and translated into when we think of it we're going to think of the the mistletoe we're going to think of yeah. uh, Balder the beautiful we're going to think of the northern sky we're going to think of the images and I think that's a very poignant way to communicate and one that is uh as we started today you know consonant with our nature as tolkien said right. we're mythopathic because god is mythopoeic um, and he made us that way yeah yeah excellent well michael thank you so much for taking the time i've really enjoyed our conversation and i, I appreciate the work that you've done i want to thank encourage you. all our listeners 
please make sure to grab a copy of the book. Um, I'll have the link of where that could be purchased in the show notes. It is definitely worth your time. And I, and I want to be clear here because I know some people hesitate if you're not a huge Lord of the Rings fan. And, I, I, and I, that was kind of what I was hoping to highlight in this episode is there's a lot here to offer, even if one is, is only, you know, minimally exposed to mm. Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings. I think there's Thank a you. lot that's still of great value in the book. So thank you so much. It was an honor to be on. I appreciate you. Great. Thanks. Thank you for listening to another episode of the signature of man podcast. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast. If you haven't already leave a review and share it out on social media. You can also email any comments or questions to the signature of man at gmail.com.